This is Our American Stories. We wanted to bring you the story of a guy you know, but don't know as well as you're about to get to know him. And his name is Tony Dungy. And if you're a football fan, and even if you're not, you know that he was the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl when his Colts defeated the Chicago Bears in 2007 in the Super Bowl. By the way, those were two African-American coaches and also two good Christian men. And Lovey Smith was the other coach. And, well, he gave a Hall of Fame speech because he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Tony Dungy, in 2016. And we love to bring you talks and speeches that reveal the character and nature of folks. We did it with John Glenn uh, when he was... When he was buried, we went back into the archives to some of the speeches he had given at the Smithsonian to bring his voice to life so you could hear from him. And you're about to hear Coach Tony Dungy talking about his life in this speech. And it starts by Coach remembering his parents. When I got the news, my first thoughts were of all the people God placed in my path to help make this possible. It started in Jackson, Michigan, and I couldn't have had a better upbringing. I'm just sorry that my parents, Wilbur and Cleo Mae Dungy, aren't alive to see this because they would be so proud. My dad always preached to us to set our goals high and to not complain about negative circumstances. Just look for a way to make things better. My mom taught us that as a Christian, your character, your integrity, and how you honored God were so much more important than your job title. One of her favorite Bible verses was Matthew 16, 26. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I know that she's happy to know that her son never forgot that verse. Wilbur and Clee May. Wilbur and Clee May, the parents. First thing Tony Dungy thanks. And then he thanked his coaches. Had a lot of excellent coaches growing up in all sports, but I really have to thank my high school football coach, Dave Driscoll. I came to him as a 14-year-old who felt like I knew it all. And Coach Driscoll helped me become a good player, but more than that, he helped me become a leader. He taught me how to think the game. Woody Woodenhofer and Tom Moore were the coaches who recruited me to the University of Minnesota, and I thank them for impacting my life. Woody would end up coaching me with the Steelers. And Tom Moore, you heard Marvin talk about Tom. Well, Tom rode with me on the very first plane ride I ever took, my recruiting trip to Minnesota when I was scared to get on the plane. He was my quarterback coach as a freshman, and then 33 years later, he was our offensive coordinator in Super Bowl 41 with the Colts, and he's still coaching now, and I owe him a lot. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Woody. And a big thank you to our head coach of the Gophers, Cal Stoll, who told us as freshmen that he expected us to be uncommon, not just average. And that thought has stuck with me throughout my life. And it's a great thought to be uncommon and not average. After some great formative years, Tony Dungy's career, his life, hit a speed bump. Well, after four years of playing quarterback at Minnesota, I expected to continue doing that in the NFL, but it didn't happen. In 1977, even though the draft was 12 rounds long then, I didn't get picked, and I was devastated. But it just is one example of God's plans being better than our plans. Woody and Tom were now in Pittsburgh coaching, 
and they convinced Chuck Knoll to give a guy who'd never played any position but quarterback a shot at another position. I have to say that $2,000 signing bonus I got didn't last long, <laughs> but I ended up gaining a lot more than money. Chuck Knoll would play a huge, huge role in my life and teach me so much about the game of football. But in our first meeting, he said that even though we were now professionals and we're being paid to play the game, we shouldn't make it our life. There was more to life than just football, and he wanted to help us find our life's work. But Coach Knoll, Art Rooney Sr., and Dan Rooney lived that out every day in the way they led the Steeler organization. Dungy talks about how one man in particular stood out in the Steelers organization. There were so many great players on that team. A lot of them up here right now as I speak today, and they all had an impact on me, but none of them more so than Donnie Shell. Donnie took me under his wing, and I learned so much from him, not just about playing safety, but about being a Christian athlete, a husband and father, and a teammate. Thank you, Donnie. And then Dungy remembers many setbacks and opportunities on and off the field. After getting a Super Bowl ring my second year, I experienced another disappointment, getting traded. But again, the Lord was using disappointment to help me grow. With the San Francisco 49ers, I got to play for Bill Walsh and see another system. And Eddie DeBarlo was instilling the same principles in his team that I'd seen with the Steelers, doing everything in a first-class and family way. My playing career only lasted one more year, and suddenly, at 25 years old, I was looking for a real job. That's when Coach Noel called me and gave me that chance to start my life's work. Coming back to Pittsburgh was the beginning of my coaching journey, but there was another blessing in store for me, meeting my beautiful wife, Lauren, the love of my life, my biggest supporter, and my greatest blessing. And when we come back, it's almost a biography listening to this speech, and that's why we love to play him. In his words, and you hear him referring to his, his Lord, and when we do and when we can, we focus on people's faith. And when it's not there, that's fine too, but we don't leave it out when it is there. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Tony Dungy's Hall of Fame speech, A Day in the Life, A Glimpse into the Man who was the first African-American to ever win a Super Bowl. More on Tony Dungy from Tony Dungy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our first wave of children came soon after we got married. 
Sierra, Jamie, and Eric's lives were typical of assistant coaches' kids. Moving every few years, leaving friends, making new friends, and they did it without complaining. Now our second wave of kids, Jordan, Jade, Justin, Jason, Jalen, Jaden, and Jayla, well, they had a little more stability. Jordan and Jade were able to experience some of the perks of being the head coach's kids, but they also had their disappointments, like when Dad couldn't come to a birthday party or a school performance. But all ten of them know I love them, and I hope they know how much I appreciate their sacrifices. And that's Tony Dungy talking about his family. He had spoken about his bride before we uh, left you off in the last segment. And now we continue with this great speech by Tony Dungy. He was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And periodically, we love to take you back to old speeches, old essays, old movies, because if you didn't bump into it, it's not old. And this reveals so much of Tony Dungy's character in this Hall of Fame speech. Here, he recalls some of the steps along the path to becoming a head coach. Well, getting to that head coaching job was a long journey from Pittsburgh to Kansas City to Minnesota. 15 great years and a lot of wonderful people. But I have to thank two people in particular. During my four years with the Vikings, Tom Lanphier, our chaplain, met with me weekly going through the book of Nehemiah to give me a picture of biblical leadership that I would use to guide my teams. Thank you, Tom. And Denny Green, Denny went out of his way to teach me the responsibilities of being a head coach. Taught me about things on and off the field. He did it because he wanted to see me become a head coach. And he wanted me to be prepared and be ready when that opportunity came. And I love him for that. But as much as I appreciate that, The thing I'm most grateful to Denny for is that he made sure his assistant coaches had quality time with our families. He let my boys come to camp and be around their dad. He made sure we were able to be husbands and fathers as well as coaches. And just as Coach Noel had done, Denny showed me that you could win doing it that way. I thanked him many, many, many times over the years, but I really wish I could thank him one more time tonight for everything he did to help me take that final step. And who your mentors are matters, folks. And if you're lucky enough to stumble upon the right ones, they can change your whole life, your whole worldview. Tony Junji was lucky to stumble into Denny Green, but he also picked that chaplain. So some by design, some by chance. But they shaped this man deeply. Here's Dungy finally talking about getting the gig he'd always dreamed of. And that step came in 1996 when I got the job I thought I'd never get, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I thank Rich McKay, who headed up the search, and Brian Joel and Ed Glazer for their confidence in me. And I'm especially grateful to Malcolm Glazer, who was so supportive and so loving and gave me so much practical advice. Our family enjoyed a phenomenal six years in Tampa. 1997 was probably my favorite year in coaching. We made the playoffs for the first time in 15 years 
and the Bucks fans went crazy over their team. And those fans still remain special to me to this day. Dungey remembers another big setback, another big opportunity. Losing my job in, nine, in 2002 after a playoff loss was another painful disappointment. But again, God used it to lead me to a blessing. That's when Jim Irsay called and gave me the opportunity to join him and Bill Polin in Indianapolis. Like Rich McKay, Bill had an exceptional eye for talent, and he built a tremendous football team. We had a lot of fun over the next seven years, highlighted by that Super Bowl 41 victory. But I'll tell you, the most satisfying part was doing what Jim talked about in that first phone conversation, connecting with our community and making the Colts an integral part of the Indianapolis landscape. I'd like to thank you big time, Jim and Bill, and the Coles fans. You made us feel like native Hoosiers, and our family loves you. And Dungee then went on to thank many other people, the assistant coaches, the staff, the players, and one player in particular, Peyton Manning. But the biggest reason I'm here tonight is the people I was able to work with during my 13 years as a head coach. I had fantastic assistant coaches in Tampa and Indianapolis, and some awesome staff people. I wish I had time to recognize them individually because they were the big reason why we were successful. You don't win in the NFL without players, and was I ever blessed with players? Again, I'm not going to recognize them all individually, but so many of them are here tonight, and I'm going to ask them to stand while I talk about them. There's a bunch up here on this podium I'd like to stand, guys who played for me. There's some in my section. They're in Marvin's section. If you played for me, I'd love for you to stand up so I could recognize you. As you see, several of them are in the Hall of Fame already. Others are certainly going to follow them. And there's no doubt these guys are responsible for me being up here today. I thank you guys. I love you, every one of you. Thank you. And some guys pretend to not take the credit, and other guys don't want the credit. And you can tell, if you were watching that, that Dun, Dun G, well, he didn't like taking credit for any of this stuff. Last but not least, Dun G had to turn his attention to the trailblazers, the African-American men in this sport who paved the way for him to be, again, the very first African-American to coach an NFL Super Bowl winner. And finally, I'd like to say a special thank you to 10 men. Willie Brown, Buck Buchanan, Ernell Durden, Bob Ledbetter, Elijah Pitts, Jimmy Ray, Johnny Rowland, Al Tabor, Lionel Taylor, and Alan Webb. Now those names might not be familiar to you, but those were the African-American assistant coaches in the NFL in 1977, my first year in the league. (laughs) 
It was a small group of men, just 10 of them, if you can believe that, 10 African-American assistant coaches in the entire NFL. Many of them never got the chance to move up the coaching ladder like I did, but they were so important to the progress of this league. Those men were like my dad. They didn't complain about the lack of opportunities. They found ways to make the situation better. They were role models and mentors for me and my generation of young African-American players like Ray Rhodes, Terry Rubisky, and Herm Edwards. We were in the 80s trying to decide whether we could make coaching a career or not. Without those 10 coaches laying the groundwork, the league would not have the 200-plus minority assistant coaches it has today. And we would not have had Lovey Smith and Tony Dungy coaching against each other in Super Bowl 41. So tonight, as I join Fritz Pollard as the second African-American coach in the Hall of Fame, I feel like I'm representing those 10 men and all the African-American coaches who came before me and paved the way. And I thank them very, very much. And there you have it, Tony Dungy's speech. We're going to play this last clip now. Here is how he closed things out in The Lord Canada. has truly led me on a wonderful journey through 31 years in the NFL, through some temporary disappointments to some incredible joys. I cherish every single relationship that I was able to make over those 31 years, and I'll always be grateful to the National Football League for giving me my life's work. Thank you, and God bless. Don't complain. Make the situation better. His mom and dad told that to him. These 10 great African-American assistant coaches, and again, there were only 10 when he came into the league. There are now 200-plus. America still trying and working hard to overcome its original sin, and working hard it is. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And periodically, we love to just hear from really smart people. They're not famous. You've never heard of them before. But they can talk. And they can talk about anything. We all had that teacher that the guy could have taught or gal could have taught anything. And you would have taken it and it would have been interesting. And a while back, we had on Stephen Goldberg to talk about something or another. We don't remember what. But he went on this tear 
And it la- and it went on and on. And usually you're the host. You want to interrupt. You want to say something. But he just kept going. Yeah, you asked him one question, and 12 minutes later, the segment was over, and he hadn't even taken a breath yet. Not a he breath. He just talked. But it wasn't boring. No. Not only wasn't it boring, we were wondering... How does he keep making it more interesting? And why do we want to interrupt? And darn, I can't believe we have to go to a commercial. And so we're calling this segment Musings. And right now it's with Stephen Goldberg, but it could be with anybody. And by the way, Stephen Goldberg, now retired, was chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York for 20 years. His books include Fads and Fallacies in the Social Sciences, When Wishes Replace Thought, and the inevitability of patriarchy, which I think is what we originally had him on for, some musings about that. And his work has appeared everywhere. Psychiatry, Yale Review, National Review, Saturday Review, every review. Let's take a listen to Stephen Goldberg's musings. So it's 1956, and I'm 14 years old. I'm on this bicycle trip from Calgary, Canada to Yellowstone Park, Wyoming. There are 12 guys and a leader, an ex-Marine named Grockdorf. Now, I'm pretty good at bike riding, which is a good thing, because it's a lot of miles from Calgary to Yellowstone. But what I'm not good at, and what I never expected to do, was having to ride a horse. We would stop at a ranch, a real ranch, not what you call a, a dude ranch. And uh, we would be required to ride a horse. A horse? I know what you're thinking. What's a Jewish kid from New York doing riding a horse? Who ever heard of such a thing? The time comes when they're giving out the horses. In front of me is a guy, Jimmy, who is more than a bit of a wise guy. And he says to the cowboy who's giving the horses out, he'd like a frisky steed. Now, cowboys don't tend to show a lot of emotion on their faces, but they can't keep their feelings out of their eyes. And I could see the eyes of this cowboy, and he was thinking, oh, he wants a frisky steed, does he? Bring out Dr. Death. (laughs) So now it's my turn to be given a horse. Uh, Naturally, I request an old lady horse, preferably one with advanced arthritis. I couldn't have been more pleased. They bring me this spinster horse named Lucky. The cowboy realized I needed all the help I could get. Lucky must have been 80 years old. 80 years in people years, not horse years. We start riding, and it soon becomes clear that my horse was a sort of reverse camel. Where a camel's back goes up in the air, my horse's tummy went down and rubbed against the ground. My legs were like, you know, the things on children's bikes. I think they're called training wheels. Every step Lucky took, my heels dug into the ground. So the many-hour ride went okay. Thank goodness we didn't gallop. And we settled down at night and got into our sleeping bags for a well-deserved night's rest. But I noticed something. Grockdorf, the leader, just let the horses hang out. Now, I had seen enough Western movies to know that when a cowboy goes into a bar for a mug of sarsaparilla, um, he uh, ties his horse to a hitching post. That was, I correctly assume, to keep the horse from running away. I guess Grockdorf never heard of this um, and never saw the movies. So come morning, there was not a horse to be seen. 
three hours later, two very angry-looking cowboys rode uh, within view, leading a pack of 13 horses. It was incidentally at this time that I first thought of a question that I have not found an answer for in the 60 years that have passed since. Perhaps that's because it might uh, take a rancher to answer the question. And as your listeners probably know, we don't have many ranches in New York City. I mean, the buildings are about 20 feet apart. What kind of ranch could you have? Maybe one big enough for a single cow. Anyway, perhaps one of your listeners could answer the question, and, and here it is. This is the question. Say there are two cowboys out on a ranch, like the ones I've heard of they have in Texas. In the far, far distance, there is a horse. It's almost out of sight for the cowboys, uh, so far away that they can tell it's a horse, but not whether it's a gentleman horse or a lady horse. One of the cowboys turns to the other and says, hey, look over there, there's a horse. No problem, because the cowboy doesn't have to know the sex of the horse. The word horse covers both sexes. It's just a horse. Now, here's where things get tricky. Let's say a cow or a bull is in the distance instead of a horse. The cowboys can tell it's a cow, not a horse. The lower center of gravity is observable, um, even at the great distance. But horns and udders are much too small to be seen at that distance. One cowboy turns to the other and says, Hey, look over there. There's a... What? What is the cow-bull sexless equivalent of a horse? I wrote to the Department of Agriculture asking my question. The department wrote back uh, in a three-page, tightly typed letter giving me an entire taxonomy of the cow-bull. I didn't know whether to applaud the department for its uh, fine work or write a letter of criticism for their wasting our tax money, expending time and energy on a dumb question like mine. Anyway, the Department of Agriculture gave me an answer. You call the uh, sex-free word for uh, cow-bull, equivalent to horse-for-horse, a bostorus. Bostorus. (laughs) Well, maybe. It's really hard to believe that a cowboy would turn to his partner and say, hey, look over there, there's a Bostorus. <laughs> See, when I was a kid, I saw movies with great cowboys. Your listeners mostly have probably never heard of because they're too young. But these were great. There was Bob Steele, Lash LaRue, Whip Wilson. I mean, these guys were tough. There were no singing cowboys, if you get my drift. Bob, Lash, and Whip wouldn't be called dead saying Boss Taurus. So what would they say? I found one Google source that said there's no sexless word for cow or bull. There's no equivalent to the word horse. But people have been ranching for 5,000 years, and it's it's difficult to believe that they haven't found a need for such a word. So what could the cowboys say? Well, perhaps they could say that cow means both male and female, as we have, at least traditionally, used man not just for males, but male and female. But I've never heard of this and doubt that the cowboys had either. So, what is the sexless word for the cow bull, the equivalent of the word horse? 
60 years later, and I still don't know. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, and thank you, Stephen Goldberg, <laughs> Bustorus. Wow. Bustorus. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's Stephen Goldberg. That's our musing segment. And we just love hearing from really great storytellers. And it does not get better than that. Stephen Goldberg, retired chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we recently came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a company that will cast the ashes of a cremated friend, family member, or even your pet into a cement structure that is then placed at the bottom of the ocean as an eco-friendly memorial that helps to support healthy marine animal life. Let's just say it's an alternative to the traditional grave sites that we all know. Well, we read this, we were sort of laughing at one point and deeply curious at other points. And anytime there's a story like this, we've got to send our intrepid executive producer, Jesse Edwards, out to meet the story where the story hits the road. And that is with the CEO of the company that provides this service. With us on the line is George Frankel, and he's the CEO of Eternal Reefs. So tell us exactly what Eternal Reefs are for some of our audience that might not know exactly what you guys are doing. Eternal Reefs is a cremation memorial where we work hand-in-hand with the families to create a designed reef system called a reef ball that includes the mixing of their loved ones' cremated remains into the actual structure. These reefs have a plaque on them identifying the individual who's being memorialized, and we place these reefs as part of uh, a reef building program in each of the individual states or counties that we work in. Everything that we do is permitted through a variety of federal and state and local agencies. How did you guys come up with this idea? Who, who started it and where did this develop? Well, there's, there's a longer story to that, and that is that originally it was a group of divers from the University of Georgia who were diving down in the Florida Keys on a regular basis and could literally see the degradation of the, of the, of the reef systems from one trip to the next. And uh, I suspect one night over a little bit too much beer, they all got together and decided they wanted to do something about it. So they developed an artificial reef system called a reef ball. And if you can envision a huge wiffle ball that's been cut in half, it's round, it's hollow, and it's vented. Um, this became the design. There were two major considerations. The first one was Whatever they designed had to be stable in the marine environment because if it wouldn't stay there, it wasn't going to do any good. And the second part had to be, the question really was, if I were Mother Nature, what type of material would I like to work with? So they developed a reef ball. The reef ball has 80% of its weight in the lower, in the lower 40% of the ball itself, so it's very stable. It is made of marine-grade pH-neutral concrete, so Mother Nature doesn't have to do anything to prepare the surface to create new reef systems. When one of the founders of the um, 
Reefball Design's father-in-law got sick. He was a musician, and he came to Don Brawley and said that, uh, look, I'd much rather be in one of your reefs than a field with a bunch of old dead people. And Don committed to making sure that Gigi's father-in-law would be part of one of these artificial reefs. And Don and I were working together in a different business. And as soon as he mentioned the idea that he needed to be taking some time off to do this, it made perfect sense to me. I was dealing with my own family. My mother's life was winding down. My brother had just been diagnosed as terminal. Uh, our family cemetery plot was filled. So my mind was wide open to the concept of memorialization. And that's really the ground, the, the beginning of where Eternal Reef started from. How do you guys decide where to put the Eternal Reefs at? Everything we do is part of an existing artificial reef program. So we call either the state or the county, depending upon where we're working, the individual who is designated as the artificial reef coordinator for that particular area. Mm -hmm. And we look for locations that are vacation destination locations. So they've got hotels, they've got the infrastructure that we need, large boats, boats that can handle families, boats that can handle the reefs. Because the smallest reef we use is 750 pounds. Mm -hmm. And the reef coordinator will work with us to identify one of their ongoing projects, and that's where we'll place the reefs. That's cool. So to do people, I'm assuming, maybe swim down later years and, and to, to, to go down to visit the reef? Is, is that possible? Well, well, we actually have whole families that have learned to scuba dive so they can come out and visit their loved ones. Wow. Um, we periodically check on the reefs ourselves. We'll try to take pictures when we can. Of course, visibility and currents are a big issue. But um, we try to document as much as we can with regards to the reef and how it's progressing as we can. This is also kind of an eco-friendly alternative to traditional burial. Yeah, the answer, of course, is yes. But there's a bigger picture with that as well. And that is that we're starting to see a, a literally a, a sea change towards what we call conservation burial or conservation memorialization. More and more people are opting for what they call green burials. And the, the gold standard, if you will, because there are a lot of shades of green, is where they actually use a piece of land that is being preserved for really ecological purposes. And they turn that into more of a uh, memorial site where they bury the bodies without having caskets, without having embalming, without having vault liners. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're looking to preserve these important pieces of, of land. Well, literally, we refer to ourselves as the surf and turf of the natural burial movement. What they're doing to preserve land is largely what we're doing to preserve the ocean. Whatever grows on it is dependent upon the local water conditions. So, for example, when we work in the Chesapeake Bay, we'll get a lot of shellfish, mussels, and oysters. When we work down in uh, South Florida, we get a lot of corals. But fish will move on to these reefs literally as we place them. They're all looking for new habitat. They're all wanting to be the first one on the block in the new house kind of a thing. And, again, the concrete being pH neutral gives Mother Nature a really great jumping-off point to create an entire new ecosystem. So she'll plant all her little microorganisms. A lot of times we refer to the ocean as a nutrient-rich desert. There are billions of these microorganisms floating around looking for some place to land, burrow in, and start to grow and propagate. So when we put down an eternal reef or a reef ball, all of a sudden there's new material for Mother Nature to work with. So we'll get meaningful growth on these in some cases in as little as six weeks. So you also facilitate the ceremony, the laying of the reefs. Can you walk us through that process? So we start on a Friday where we do the casting. 
and this is where the families all come. We do these as projects to keep the cost down. And the families will mix a por the remains into a portion of the reef that we call a pearl. We then put fresh concrete on the top of the reef, and they get to put handprints in it. They get to write messages. They put small mementos like fish hooks or military medals. Uh, we give them uh, glass beads and, and shells so they can decorate the top. And this whole process allows them to take ownership. This now becomes a lot more than my mother or my father's memorial. It becomes a tribute that I made to their lives with my own hands. So these folks are now fully vested in the future of the marine environment, which we think is a great thing. We have the plaque already installed on the reef, and on Saturday we literally call that the family fun day. The family goes and does whatever it wants in the local community. Our team comes back in, we clean up the reefs, we prepare them for presentation, and on Sunday we have the viewing, which includes families taking pictures, we give them rubbing wax and paper, and they'll take rubbings of the plaques. We give them children's sidewalk chalk. They can ride all over the reef. They can ride on the inside of the reef. We have small children who will climb inside the reef and ride on the inside. Uh, and, again, if somebody is doing military honors, we make sure their honors are presented at that time. Monday, the fourth day, we'll take the reefs out to the reef side on one boat and the families out on a second boat. Each reef is individually lowered to the ocean floor one at a time and we announce who it is so the family can pay attention. After all the reefs are placed safely on the bottom, we move our placement boat off-site and put the family boat directly over the reefs. Then we give each of the families an individual opportunity to dedicate the reef to their loved one the way they see fit. Then we, as a term, reefs will dedicate the reef site to everybody that we memorialize that day. We'll circle the reef site, sound the boat's horn, and return to the dock closing the service. One other thing I'd like to add is we get an awful lot of calls about pets. And what we tell people is, look, we're glad to do a memorial for your pet, but we have to charge the same amount uh, as we do for people because we have to meet the same regulatory requirements. Have you thought about holding on to your pet's remains until your time comes? We can put you both together. So now I've got somebody out there who is now talking about their pet and what they're going to be together maybe 50 years down the road. Um, so, the, again, the whole process from start to finish is very positive. It's very therapeutic. We have parents telling us that this is the best way they could have found to introduce a child to a loss because there's no body, there's no open grave, there's no solemn music or dark room. The whole process is more of a, uh, an arts and crafts project than it is a memorialization. That's great. And what are the prices comparable to a traditional uh, burial or cremation? Well, they tell me that the current price of a funeral is about $7,000, and that doesn't include the cemetery costs, the land, the headstone, the, the, uh, the vault, the opening and closing of the, um, of, the, of the plot itself. And our prices range from $3,000 to $7,500 for our largest reef. And our largest reef can hold four family members. Uh, they all have to be ready to go at the same time. But from a cost standpoint we are relatively close to the cost of just what a casket would be, uh, and maybe less than that in most cases. And there you have it. That's Jesse talking to George Frankel, CEO at Eternal Reefs. And find out more at eternalreefs.com. We love stories like this. And, you know, for some people, this is becoming a reality. And we thought it was a little quirky and a little odd at first, but as always, there's more to the story than, than meets the eye or the ear. 
Again, Lee Habib, Our American Stories, and that was Jesse, as always, doing great work for us here on the show. to talk about music on this show. Old music, new music, country, R&B, you name it, we cover it. Rock, we've done Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, their life stories, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Frank Sinatra, and Miranda Lambert is, well, she's a new kind of country artist. She's a real merger of rock and roll here and blues. She's best known as a solo artist and is a member of the Pistolanis. Miranda has won two Grammys, 21 Academy of Country Music Awards, five American Country Awards, and on and on. Lambert's debut is this song from the title track of the album, Kerosene. Certified platinum in the United States and produced the singles, Me and Charlie Talking, Bring Me Down, New Strings. All four singles, top 40 hits. And that's why we're talking about her life and her music. Kerosene is about a breakup where the narrator has enough with her boyfriend and starts burning his stuff with kerosene. And like a lot of female artists, generally these things start with boyfriend breakups. And like the male artists who always start with chasing the girl and not getting the girl. But ultimately as artists come along, they move past that. We'll be doing the life of Bruce Springsteen soon and... As his records went on, he started saying, well, I chased the girl, I got the girl, now I'm living with the girl. Now, what's married life like? Then he got divorced and he wrote about that. Then he got remarried and had a child and he wrote about that. And so we love to deal with artists who actually evolve from where they started and move along and move their audience along with them. Because of her young age and early success, Miranda didn't have the opportunity to experience a lot of concerts from the perspective of a fan, in this clip, Miranda talks about the last time she had the chance to actually enjoy a show before she herself became famous. I went to uh, Fanfare, when it was Fanfare, to the last show at the fairgrounds, when it was the last year at the fairgrounds. And I never got any of the autographs, like, you know, the wait in the autograph signs. I never did that because I wanted to see the shows. Um, and I remember one of the years I was there, um, 
we got there real early so I could get up close to this, the front of the stage. So I'm like the third row. And Leanne Womack was there that year. And she had come in and she had had a bus wreck. And she was all frazzled and she still got up there and sang after her bus had wrecked on the way. And it was just like a big deal. And I just thought, oh my gosh, how could you ever sing after your bus wrecks? And then, you know, then you get on the road and you realize things like that happen and you have to go on. And so that was kind of like, that stands out in my mind because I just thought it was such a big deal then that she mustered up the strength to get up there. Born in 1983 in Longview, Texas, Miranda was named after her great-grandmother, Lucy Miranda. Her father, Rick Lambert, was a police officer who played in a country rock group called Contraband in the 1970s. Great band name. While still in high school, Lambert made her professional singing debut with the Texas Pride Band. She also fronted the house band at the Rio Palm Isle in Longview, Texas, a long-running venue that had presented legends such as Elvis Presley and Willie Nelson, and the place where Brooks and Dunn started out as the house band. Not bad pedigree. Next, Lambert describes what her transition from a regular fan watching a show to rock star status was like. And then I got to be on the other side of it, which is crazy to go from sitting on the 12th row as a fan and then being on that stage, you know. Um, I remember one year Charlie Robinson was singing on the big stage at the stadium. Me and my mom had taken a Texas flag, and so we went in the photo line. And all we did, we didn't take photos. We just held up our Texas flag, like, we're from Texas, too. <laughs> we were just so proud of that. Um, but now being on the other side is so crazy because I look out and I can see the spots where I sat as a fan. And I'm up there on that stage, and it's crazy. It's, it's like, you know, it takes me back when I'm up there singing to dreaming about it. And I have to make sure I say a little prayer of thanks every time I'm up there. A little prayer of thanks every time she's up there. And we love telling stories like this, folks. And Miranda's in her early 40s now. Uh, and no, she's not Frank Sinatra. And no, she's not Miles Davis. But who knows where her career is going to go. I think it's when artists, and particularly songwriters, hit their 40s that they really start getting interesting. At 16, Lambert appeared on the Johnny High Country Music Review in Arlington, Texas. The same talent show that helped launch the career of Leanne Rimes. Lambert then acquired a recording session in Nashville, and that's the gold standard for country artists, getting to Music City and Music Row. But left the studio after she became frustrated with the pop type of music presented to her. We hear this story over and over again. Chris Stapleton, my goodness. It took him years and years for finally him to get a record deal where he could just be himself. She went back to Texas in 2000 and asked her dad to teach her how to play guitar so she could write her own songs. In 2002, she was hired to perform at the Ty Phelps Country Music Restaurant and Venue, Love and War, in Texas, where Miranda and her father met entertainment attorney Rod Phelps, who had been instrumental in getting Garth Brooks to Nashville, another pretty decent singer-songwriter. And Garth did it his way, too. Totally his way. Phelps was impressed with the Lamberts and sent letters and demos to producer and record executive Mark Wright and Garth's manager, Bob Doyle. Their positive responses got Miranda to return to Nashville. And on September 15, 2003, she signed with Epic Records, her debut single. Well, let's take a listen. Me and Charlie Boy used to go walking Sitting in the woods behind my house And being lovers, man, I stole that kiss Holding hands with nobody else around 
Charlie said he wanted to get married But we were only ten so we'd have to wait Said we never let our love run dry Like so many do these days So we treat our love like a And when we come back, more on the life of Miranda Lambert And you can hear it right from the beginning, a storyteller more after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story. This day in history, Miranda Lambert was born in 1983. And you're listening to her first hit song. And it's off her second album, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and the song Gunpowder and Lead. It became her first top ten country hit in July of 2008. And with over one million digital downloads, Gunpowder and Lead was certified platinum on December 3rd, December 3rd, 2010. And that's the mark of every hit record, is to get that certification. In this clip, Lambert talks about how music was the only thing that ever came easy to her, and how writing gets harder as she gets older. I don't know where I'd be or what I'd be doing if I wasn't doing this, because it's the only thing I can do. You know, um, I've been playing music for a living for 12 years, and... I'm thanks for not stopping now. <laughs> when I was 17, I knew that this was what I wanted to do, what I needed to do, and it's the only thing in my life that's ever come naturally to me. Everything else I have to work really hard for, you know, sports and academics and all of that stuff just wasn't easy. And music is the only thing that comes easy, like it's what I was meant to do. Writing is more of a challenge now than it was when I was younger, just because I'm busy with life and I have a store and a bed and breakfast, and so I have to like push some of that out of my mind and go, okay, it's time to just be creative. Her third album, Revolution, was released in September of 2009. Five singles were released from that album, including two number one hits. The career is really moving. The House That Built Me, which spent four weeks at the top, and Heart Like Mine. The House That Built Me is a country ballad in the key of F major, driven primarily by an acoustic guitar with steel guitar fills. The song's female narrator describes returning as an adult to the house that she grew up in and asking the person who now lives in the house if she could step inside and take a look. Let's take a listen. I know they say you can't go home again I just had to come back one last time Ma'am, I know 
You don't know me from Adam But these handprints on the front steps are mine Up those stairs In that little back bedroom Is where I did my homework And I learned to play guitar And I bet you didn't know Under that live oak My favorite dog is buried in the yard I thought if I could touch this place or feel it This brokenness inside me might start healing Out here it's like I'm someone else I thought that maybe I could find myself If I could just come in I swear I'll leave Take nothing but a memory From the house that built me This is Miranda's first single of her career that she did not have a hand in writing. It was written by Alan Shamblin. But what a song. Let's keep playing it. Plans were drawn on concrete board Nail by nail and board by board Daddy gave life to mama's dream long way from kerosene and she just started to grow up and reminds you a lot of if you've ever heard Bruce Springsteen's My Father's House and it's a a recurrent theme in many great writers going back to that place you were born to try and get back in touch with yourself a part of yourself you lost Miranda became very famous after this record ultimately married Blake Shelton who everybody knows but then came the divorce and a very public one she took out a piece of paper and wrote down her emotions, and on July 18, 2016, Lambert released a single called Vice to country radio and digital outlets. Written by Lambert, Shane McAnally, and Josh Osborne, it's the first song released since Lambert's 
2014 album Platinum. Here, Miranda talked about the writing process just before that release. The writing process has been long. Um, I've had a lot more time to write for this record than I have in the past because I was not heavily touring last summer and throughout the fall I toured a little and um, but I moved to Nashville about the time I started writing for this project and so I was writing about five days a week uh, for about eight months and that's new for me because I haven't lived where the hub of it is you know so um, it was really great I really I wrote so many songs and I feel like I really grew as a songwriter it's been such a process of kind of hunkering down and sort of keeping to myself and writing and recording and so now that the public is going to hear something finally it makes me happy I'm nervous but I'm excited because I really only had feedback from a small circle of people around me and I haven't you know gotten to hear if what I've been working on so hard is actually working so um, it's always this moment of anticipation when you have a new song coming out and um, it's been a while for me so I'm excited, but nervous. And nervous she is, you can hear it. And this song, Vice, which I described before, debuted at number two on the country song charts. And let's take a listen. Stay as a needle dropping on a vinyl Neon singer with a jukebox title full of heartbreak 33, when it hurts this good, you gotta play it twice. Another vice. This is Our American Stories, Miranda Lambert Barner on this day in history in 1983, a unique voice, and she just keeps getting better. Looking forward to many more years listening to her work, anticipating her writing. Let's go back to Miranda to close out the segment.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. Music, love, sports, history, and, well, anything that stirs the soul. And occasionally, we'll do public policy stories, but only when it hits the pavement. That is, only when it affects you, the listener. In America's great experiment that we call federalism, our states serve as laboratories of democracy, passing laws and regulations of their own, and we the people get to see firsthand how well they work or how well they don't. And how many times have we in America chosen to move because we don't like the way things are going? Sometimes we're left with no choice but to respond by shutting down our business, moving to another state, to a state that's more welcoming. It's no easy decision for any family or any company to leave home and to start a new life. And today, our field correspondent, John Woods, brings us just such a story about one company and what they were facing for the inaugural episode of our Moving in America series. months back, I visited a company, a company that opened its first factory way before I was born, way before my dad was born, or my grandfather, or even my great-grandfather, or my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was born. That's 15 generations in case you were counting. Anyway, you get the point. They've been in this business for a while, like 490 years. That's right, since 1526. They still operate in the same small town in Italy where they first set up shop all those years ago. And the company is still operated by the same family. Talk about laying down roots. Dr. Ugo Gasali Breda and his two sons, Franco and Pietro, are the ones presently pulling the Breda company trigger. Here's Dr. Ugo. The family together... Uh strength that's brought them to the 15th generation of running the family business. Well, in 1977, Breda made a commitment to another small town, this time to Akakik, Maryland, when they opened their first and only U.S. factory. But in the last few years, Maryland had become less committed to them. And so Breda had to make a decision. Their general counsel, Jeff Ray, told me, we always run into problems in Maryland politically. Every year we're fighting battles in the legislature. Some years we do okay, some mm-hmm. years we don't. And then the Newtown tragedy occurred. Right here in Newtown, Connecticut, the site today of a mass shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children. And Governor Martin O'Malley's reaction to that was to introduce a whole slew of gun control legislation and uh, proposals in, in Maryland. Here's then Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley talking about the law he signed. We passed comprehensive le- uh, gun safety legislation, not by looking at the pollings or looking at, the, at, at, uh, at what the polls said. We actually did it. We were able to pass this and still respect the hunting traditions of people who live in our rural areas. But interrupting people's hunting season was the least of Jeff's concerns. So many amendments were added to it that would have stopped us from doing business in Maryland. 
for example, we could not import magazines into the state that were high capacity, even to use in manufacturing military pistols for the U.S. Armed Forces. The Beretta factory in Maryland made the U.S. military's official pistol, the M9. It also has a 15-round magazine, a so-called high-capacity magazine, and it, too, was about to be illegal. And it turns out the military was just going to be collateral damage. We couldn't even have high-cap magazines in our factory. The Maryland ban would have prevented anyone from having a high-capacity magazine or assault rifle. Whether they were a civilian or off-duty military, or even manufacturers like Beretta. The off-used reason for the ban is, well, who needs more than 10 bullets? And don't so-called high-capacity magazines lead to more gun deaths? Politicians say such things because they feel that more bullets, or more guns, or more accessories on those guns must be more dangerous. But things are almost always more complicated than they seem. Between 1993 and 2013, the number of guns in this country increased some 53%. There's now more than one gun for every man, woman, and child in America. And in those same 20 years, the gun homicide rate dropped an astounding 49%. Proponents of gun control laws like Maryland's might say they were responding to mass shootings. They argue that such laws are needed to stop twisted murderers from harming us. If only that were so. Remember Eric Harris, who with Dylan Klebold infamously murdered a dozen of their classmates at Columbine High School? Eric didn't have a single high-capacity magazine. Each magazine he carried held only 10 rounds. He just carried 13 of them. The Virginia Tech shooter also carried 10-round magazines, 17 of them. The Maryland law wouldn't have, couldn't have, stopped either of them. But this reality didn't stop Maryland's politicians from grandstanding. And Beretta realized the pressure to do something, anything, put them at an ever-increasing risk. So the the downshot of all that was that we got through that legislative process barely. And the, our discussion then, my discussion with the Berettas turned from where are we going to move our expansion of, fat, of production to, we need to start thinking about whether it's safe to stay in Maryland. Because if another tragedy occurs, or even not, the next governor, or you know, O'Malley was leaving office at that point, but the next governor or governor after that, Something happens and they say, you know what, we don't think you should be manufacturing any guns in the state. Or you can't make semi-automatic pistols, or you can't make semi-automatic shotguns, or who knows what. And so we decided, let's move the entire factory during a time of our choosing, rather than being forced to do it with the disruption and costs that happen if you do it in a hurry. With new laws on the books, Maryland didn't get any safer in a hurry. May 2015, two years after Governor O'Malley signed the law into effect, Baltimore, Maryland recorded its deadliest month in its 289-year history. This is my first time in my 29 years, like, ever being kind of nervous being outside. I never felt unsafe in my neighborhood, and it's always been a crazy neighborhood, but I never felt unsafe. 
At this point, you may still be asking yourself, why would a regular guy or gal in Maryland want an assault rifle or a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds? Here's Jeff being questioned at a public forum by a member of the Maryland legislature. But it's only very infrequently that somebody commits a crime with an assault weapon. Why do you need one in self, for self-defense? Well, for the very same reason that, that police buy them for, for protection of the community. Um, if I'm a owner of a bodega and I'm trying and I have multiple assailants coming into my shop, even just presenting a rifle like that could be a significant deterrent. And he might need that deterrent because when seconds count, the police are often minutes away with response times that range from under five minutes to longer than a whole day and about 10 minutes on average. So either the bodega owner is going to be able to protect his life and his livelihood, or he's not. And when we come back, we're going to learn where Beretta chose to move to. Because clearly, a divorce is about to happen with the state of Maryland. And this company that chose this state is now being forced to flee this state. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and more of our Moving in America first, first story after these messages. America story by our field correspondent, John Woods, who brings us his conversation with Jeff Ray, the general counsel and board member of the Italian firearms company, Beretta. We just heard Jeff talking about how Beretta had decided to leave its American home of Maryland because Maryland criminalized assault rifles and magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, and in doing so, criminalized a big part of Beretta's business. Next, Jeff tells us how they chose their next American home. Here's John Woods. America's respect for our right to defend ourselves, our right to control our own future, free from intrusion, is what brought Beretta to America 40 years ago, and what brought others here as far back as 400 years ago. But the Berettas we're looking for were states not only where there was a current respect for Second Amendment rights, but that would be likely to maintain that respect and tradition for hopefully centuries to come, but generations to come for sure. And and I'd like to emphasize, it's not just that it's a gun issue. The Berettas see the American Second Amendment and the adherence to the Second Amendment and respect for the Second Amendment as an element of respect for individual freedom. And that is not something that you see in every country. In some countries, people look naturally and maybe even instinctively to the government to do things for them. As for countries that don't share America's values, take France, for example. When Islamic terrorists struck the Charlie Hebdo magazine, 
the police actually ran from them. They ran away alongside the very people they were supposed to protect because they didn't have guns and the Islamic terrorists did. And they always will, no matter what laws you pass. Terrorists and criminals just don't follow laws. In France, citizens not only can't carry a weapon for self-defense, they don't even have a right to own one at all. The French expected their police to protect them so that they didn't have to protect themselves. But they expected too much, and it cost lives. But the tradition and the culture of the United States is a belief that you should be able to do something for yourself first. And the Berettas really respect that. It's not so much that it's an entrepreneurial thing, but it's a, it's a concept of self-sufficiency and self-determination that they find admirable. And so from a business point of view, they find that to be admirable as well. People aren't passively waiting for others to do for them. They are proactively going out to do things for themselves. And if you're a business person, that's the type of person you want to hire or ma- have manage your company. When Breda had first moved to Maryland in 1977, Akakik was a backwater stop along the Potomac River. But in the past decade, the town has grown 40%, and median household income has grown to $123,000. That's two and a half times the American average. And it's in part thanks to Beretta. But the rest of the state of Maryland surrounding Akakik changed too, just in the other direction. And the Berettas had to move to keep their business in operation, to keep their 400 people employed. So how did this 500-year-old, multi-million dollar international business make a decision that would affect generations to come? Easy. Start by giving a test with just one question. There were 22 states we identified as good Second Amendment states. Um, We ended up arbitrarily choosing seven that would pass the test. After we did that, went down selected to seven. And the seven were, in no, no, no particular order, Texas, Tennessee, and Kentucky, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia. And in the end, we were all, we we looked at, and I personally went to 80 different locations in seven states in a three-month period. And we went in person because when we first met with the city council or the whoever they were sent, the city was sending to, to meet us or the county. I wanted to tell them we were from Beretta, the gun company, in front of them, and I wanted to judge their reaction. I wanted to see if they just said, oh, if they kind of recoiled, or if they were enthusiastic, or how they took that news. And like good neighbors would, a few governors came to visit. And Governor Rick Perry flew up to Maryland to meet with Mr. Beretta, who happened to be in in, uh, the, in our factory at that time. He comes in, sees him, we're sitting there at the conference table talking, and he's giving a very effective pitch about in favor of Texas, by the way. He's the best salesperson for that state of anybody I've ever seen. And um, at a certain point, I, I looked at him, I said, you know, you're, you've now visited Beretta USA exactly one more time than any governor of Maryland in our 40-year history. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. Not only that, 
I said the um, the county executive for the county we're located in is Prince George's County. No county executive has ever visited our facility. No county council member has ever visited our facility. And we're the second largest private employer in Southern Maryland. We were the only manufacturer in Southern Maryland. Maryland politicians couldn't come as far as 15 minutes to visit Beretta, while Governor Perry came from over 1,500 miles away, all in hope of bringing new jobs and more prosperity to his state. But it would be another governor of another state that would go above and beyond to showcase true Southern hospitality. And he traveled 4,700 miles to do it. The difference in the willingness of the the leader of a state to come visit us was a sign of respect and appreciation that we never got in Maryland. Um, And in the case of Governor Haslam, that's Tennessee's governor, he he played that out even to the to even more remarkable degree by flying to Italy to meet with the family in person. So that's a very meaningful thing, uh, you know. In uh, you know, to have somebody say, "Hey, I not only want you, but I I want to come see you. Right. I want to tell you in person." And the Tennessee governor's gesture would make all the difference for his state. Breda has committed over $45 million to invest in building a state-of-the-art factory outside of Nashville, Tennessee, a town known for its music. And will soon be known for its manufacturing. And Breda's factory comes complete with Ferrari engine milling machines. They're sure spending a lot of money but Tennessee stands to gain so much more. You know, over the decades, Bread USA has hired people from thousands of families in Southern Maryland. So it's not just that you hire thousands of people, but if you hire a few hundred people and they each come from a different family, you suddenly have thousands of families that now have health care benefits that they didn't have before, or we give life insurance to employees. We do a lot of stuff like that, and it, it's just kind of a rising tide that definitely lifts all boats, so it has a really positive effect on the community. Uh, we had estimated in Maryland in the next 10 years we'd be paying about $35 million in state taxes. Well, that ain't going to happen. So that money's going to come, That you know, that, not all of it, we still have some operations in Maryland, but a lot of that money's going to be now coming to Tennessee. And their employees' money will be spent in diners and dry cleaners, donated to churches and rotary clubs. And the cycle of economic growth will spin in Tennessee, hopefully for another 490 years to come. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm John Woods. And what a great piece. Good work, John. And great to hear a general counsel step out into the fray. So often general counsels are, are afraid of their own shadows. And some CEOs are afraid of their own shadows, too. They're afraid to stand up and speak when state governments or the federal government come after them. And kudos to Beretta for doing what they did. And my goodness, 
What a story about Governor Haslam going above and beyond the call of duty. I think the people of Tennessee should know what he did. Because, my goodness, the last thing he wants to do is get on a plane and fly across an ocean on the mere prospect that maybe, maybe Beretta will come there and not to the other 60 other locations. They were thinking about locating their factory and a whole bunch of other states. And that's a commitment to the taxpayers. And what a difference that made to the people of Tennessee. And you heard the number, folks, $35 million a year. Lost to the people of Maryland. They're going to have to find that $35 million somewhere else. And you know where they're going to have to get it from? The taxpayers, the homeowners. And that's the price of high taxation on local people. And that's why we're doing these stories, these stories about moving in America. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. 